Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up, what's up, what's up? What's up is the biggest IMAX screen I've ever seen in my life. We're sitting um, in an empty cinema. Yeah. In London's West End. London's glittering West End. Uh, and we're looking out at thousands and thousands of empty seats yes. in the hope and expectation that they will be filled very, very shortly. Very, very, I know there's at least 100 people because I walked past them when I came in. But more worryingly, we're sitting in front of this dirty big IMAX screen and uh, it's making me feel very small. Well, it might make you feel very small. However, you so one of the things that you're going to hear later on in the programme is my interview with Daniel Craig. Oh, yes. Right. How so was that, so that, and, and it's filmed. He was great. But what it means is that I'm actually going to be on that screen. Oh, now, no. I, I don't really want to be <laughs> on any screen at all because in comparison, let's face it, you've got da- da- one Craig. of the most beautiful men next to Charles Hawtrey. So, <laughs> a, and on an IMAX screen. This Excellent. Is very, very unfair. Did I get makeup? Did no. I heck? Did I get wardrobe? Absolutely not. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever seen a bigger show than this? Have we done a bigger show than this? No, I think this, we've done OBs before, but this is absolutely, this is really huge. Because uh, Sam Mendes is coming along later on, and I do think that Sam Mendes would go, yeah, you might have made a Bond movie, but look what we're doing Look here what we've got here. We've show. got cameras and everything. There is something spectacularly perverse about doing a radio show from an IMAX cinema. Right. It's like, well, we're, we're sort of, we don't really conform, do no. we, really? Anyway. Here's a thing from uh, Owen Daly. Hello, meantime, Owen. Who's in County Kerry. Uh, Dear Snuffles and Sneezy, having listened to you struggle manfully in the face of a viral onslaught last week... On the subject of which, are you better? Well, I'm, I'm better than I was last better week. Than you were yes, last apologies week. to everybody who suffered. Uh, I feel it may be time to establish a new corner of the now labyrinthine world of wittertainment. As a pharmacist, says Owen, we could have done with him. Yeah. Might I suggest that we convene... An apothecary's alcove, or possibly <laughs> an apothecary's atrium, if the ground floor is now too full of clergy, agnostics and pipe-smoking women. <laughs> now, that would be a party, wouldn't it? It would. Over there, the clergy, over there, the agnostics, and over there in the smoky corner. The very small group of pipe-smoking women, as it turned out. I we think it was only five, I think, in total. Most of them were in New Zealand. Yes. There must be a reason <laughs> for that. Should the need arise, continues Owen, we could provide you with expert advice as to how to manage the dreaded man flu. Indeed, we could pool our expertise and compound a specially formulated linctus designed to soothe the inflamed larynx of the afflicted wittertainer, thus ensuring uninterrupted listening pleasure for your audience. Right, you ready for this? Yes, go ahead. Kermode and Mayo's cough was syrup. That's very good. Was syrup. Was syrup. Was syrup. Was syrup. Maybe the first in a line of specially designed medicines to treat a whole host of WRIs with entertainment related illnesses, such as Michael Bay headache or even, get this, Danny diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> Owen good. Daly, probably uh, the, email of the email of the Sorry. day. I think that joke made me cough. <coughs> I thought that was very good, anyway. <laughs> Caroline O'Donnell, I quite like the idea of a cough was syrup. In last, year's, uh, last week's show, says Caroline, a correspondent referred to wittertainment as having medicinal properties. Yes. I've recently had an experience which shows the other side, as I consider myself a near miss as the first wittertainment-related fatality. By the way, Caroline's in Australia. 
Okay. You're looking all serious now. No, no, it's just when you start reading out these emails, I don't know where they're going. I was walking my dog along the Wimmera River in County Victoria, Australia. Yes. We've had an early and very hot start to spring, thanks to El Nino. I was walking and giggling along to the podcast and paying no attention to what was around me when I saw a movement by my foot. I had just stepped over a two-metre eastern brown snake camouflaged in the dappled shade. Eastern browns are very dangerous, and at this time of year, when they have just come out of hibernation, they are also hungry, bad-tempered, and aggressive. Like you. Like teenagers. I shot, a foot, I shot a foot into the air as the snake turned its head toward me, and I ran screaming such that I'm surprised I didn't rouse you from your beds back in the UK. Yeah. My pragmatic husband, Carlos, thinks I'm being hysterical and says that a tightly bandaged and immobilised bite site might not result in death for up to three days. Oh, but that's I don't, all right, then. I don't find this particularly consoling. I've lived to walk another day, which could be a Bond film, but we'll be giving the podcast a miss on these walks until the end of spring. Could I please have a wass-up for my wittertainment mad husband, Carlos, and brother Hugh in Wellington, New Zealand, as well as my year 12 English students who completed their last ever day at school this week. They will sit their final English, English exam next Wednesday and have the choice of writing one of their three essays on the manipulation of reality in Levinson's film Wag the Dog. Any last-minute tips on this film would be greatly appreciated. It's got a good soundtrack. Yeah. Mark Knopfler did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I just say, on the subject of being bitten on the foot by poisonous snakes, there is a famous story. I don't think it's a popular Anyway, she's still alive, so she's a near miss. That was what I was worried about. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, email. Um, when they're making Fitzcarraldo, and one of the people working on the film, one of the many people working on the film, was bitten on the, bitten on the foot by, by a deadly poisonous snake. And, uh, and this was reported as being sort of, you know, one of the tragedies. And Werner Herzog said, it was not a tragedy. He cut his foot off. He's fine. Right. That's a different <laughs> Sorry, definition that's a different of the word different, fine. Exactly, yes. Anyone has used yes, ever since. Yes, it got back to work. It's all fine. So what happens now is we stop doing this bit. Mm. So the next bit of the podcast that people listen to, miraculously, yes. the cinema will be full. Be full. Yes. Or we'll all be very, very embarrassed. <laughs> anyway, here's the show. <laughs> You're good company, boys, I must say. Hello and welcome to our very special programme from the Empire Leicester Square. Hello, London. We are in front of a giant IMAX screen in front of an audience of hand-picked, individually selected Wittertainees. You choose every single one. Every single one Very of them. They're good. all queuing outside. We rejected so many. Well, that was your job. It's like that club Heroes in the 1980s. Is it? Never mind. <laughs> Is that what happened? Anyway, before we go any further, can I recommend live streaming? Usually a complete... You know, well, it's a little bit boring because it's just me and Mark in a litter-strewn studio. Uh, but if you want to go to the Five Live website and watch online, you're actually going to have a star-studded afternoon. It is. There, there we have, we have the, the, the sofa of fame there, just waiting to be is. filled. Uh, OK. So before we go too far away from our chuckle-off, I just thought what, we'd like, what I'd quite like to do is to just 
uh, reinvent the chuckle-off. So there you heard, of course, uh, Ken Branner yes. and Tom Courtney. Yes. Uh, two says doing a mighty chuckle-off. But we just thought we got, we're going to reenact that now. And this side uh, over here, stage... Is this stage right, Mark? Uh, which, which side are you referring to? This side here. Uh, that would be stage left. I want you on stage left, please, to be Ken Branner. When Ken Branner laughs, you, you laugh. laugh. And Mark, on your side... Okay, so uh, over here we're Tom Courtney's side. So when Tom chuckles, you chuckle. Okay. Now, where's the dividing line in the? I would say the dividing line is me. Okay, fine. Here. So uh, if you're right in the middle, then you can then you can choose obviously which side. But if you're on, uh, on this side, you're Sir Ken, and on the other side, you're Sir Tom. Let's do it again. Okay, so uh, I, think the, I think the minions won. I thought, I thought, I thought that's fantastic. On our sofa of fame, uh, very shortly, ladies and gentlemen, Sam Mendes is going to be here, the man of the moment. You'll also be hearing from uh, from Daniel Craig. Uh, There's an interview which I did uh, yesterday, which will be up on that huge IMAX screen. We can see you enormous. Yeah. I'm not really looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it. Because it's fine if you're Daniel Craig and you're made up and you've got wardrobe. <laughs> Everyone else looks rather shabby next to him. Plus, we have some surprise guests for you. Ooh. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, BBC.co.uk slash five live. And for the first time ever, by the way, first time ever, the highlights, if indeed there are any, <laughs> will be on iPlayer. Uh, later on this afternoon and this evening for you to cherish at home. So when, when we do audience cutaways, if you're actually sitting with someone who you shouldn't be sitting with, <laughs> just saying. Just hashtag just saying. Just saying. Okay, so uh, it's ten minutes past two. We can't go any further really without saying hello to Jason. So uh, it's something that everyone was saying, can you please just make sure you say hello to Jason Isaac? So after three, please. As, as one? Well, I, well, obviously everybody here, because we do it every week, but oh. obviously this is a pleasure now everyone else can get involved with. So after three, please. One, two, three. Hello to Jason Isaac. Well, hello to the Empire Leicester Square. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi. Hello, hello, hello. It's really hello, him. Hello. Hi, lovely to see you. Ah, I was just walking by and I heard that. It's really him. Uh, <laughs> really him. I'm alive. Other coffees are available. The, just thing, so that you know. the thing that people don't realise is you are actually in the corner of the studio in every show that we do. We just, don't, we just don't usually bring you out. Do you know, what's weird for me is the last time I stood here, a very bizarre thing happened. I had three lines in Cars for which I met uh, John Lasseter yeah. on Skype. When I was in Scotland shooting something. So and you then, met him on Skype, meaning you didn't meet him? Yeah, exactly, I didn't meet Good. him, exactly. And I dubbed these three lines, and he talked about baseball for an hour or so, which was great. And the engineer went, hurry up, we've only got it for an hour. And I went, it's John Lasseter, <laughs> I'm going to talk as long as he wants. And then when they came to London to do the movie, uh, somebody got in touch and they said, uh, will you come and do the press junket for Cars? And I went, 
Well, he got three lines. That's a bit weird, isn't it? And they said, well, John, I'd like you to come. I said, I don't think John Lester has asked me to be there. And then John Lester called me and he said, will you come to the junket and stand on stage at Leicester Square? And I went, John, that's so lovely of you. But I've only got three lines. He went, you could have lunch with Michael Caine. And I went, <laughs> I went, all right. So I came and I... I and he stood up here, and I literally, I'm done by the time the credits are on, and uh, he said, and one of the stars here, Sir Michael Caine, and fabulous star of the movie, Jason Isaacs, which is really embarrassing. And then I went to do the press junket, and I met all the press one-to-one, like Simon did in his interview with Dan. They, they came in, they went, I know them, uh, after a few years, and they went, what are you doing here? And he got three lines, and I said, lunch with Michael Caine. They went, oh, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that was the last time I stood here. Well, but we can get you a sandwich in Presimonte. Thanks very much. <laughs> or any other sandwich booth that may be around. Right, yeah, yeah. Because there are, there are many. That's already the best showbiz story that the show's going to have. So that's absolutely. Be well, you don't know what Sam Mendes is going to tell. No, that's true. No, that's or true. any other of our mysteries. He's going to tell us about how he had lunch with Jason Isaacs once. Uh, now, later I met him at a New Year's Eve party, Sam. He won't remember it. I'm pretty damn sure he won't remember it. <laughs> Now, later on, you're going to be announcing the winner of our Well Done You I am. I've been watching the fantastic and uh, rather humbling, intimidatingly good. Why, why are they intimidatingly good? Just because there's so much talent out there. People are incredibly imaginative. Not only that, they can use all the tools of iMovie and other technologies available, but there's green screen stuff, there's animation stuff, there's memory stuff, there's stuff with and without dialogue. It's beautifully shot and cut. The scores are great, which I didn't expect. I'm so used to those short films having plinky plonky massage music on, and uh, they had fabulous music on it. It was just all, all together good, I thought. And, and, uh, and I know you didn't see them all last year, but I think the jump in 12 months is extraordinary as people get to grips with, presumably, the technology that you're talking about, which yeah. makes it possible for so many people to make great stuff. Well, I remember 1996, uh, before either of you were born, I was at the uh, Edinburgh Festival with uh, a film, and Shane Meadows was there with Small Time, his oh first yeah. film. Shane Meadows, who I think is a verifiable genius, one of the great English, uh, English storytellers. And uh, if you haven't seen his three telly series, you should watch them. They're brilliant. This is England, 86, 88, and 90. Anyway, the first film he'd made there was there. It was 50 minutes long. It was, you know, they crossed the line, was kind of craft thing. Booms came in. Sl wigs were slipping. And in every way, it was, it was terrible craft-wise. But it was clear it heralded the arrival of a brilliant storyteller. Yeah. And at the Q&A, so this rather posh and patronising girl said, tell me, Shane, someone like yourself making a film, do you feel that that filmmaking is democratised now, and the working classes are to tell their stories. And he said, uh, I don't know, I, uh, I walked past a film workshop about a year ago, and I went in and held the lights and had a fag with a bloke, and then I borrowed the camera at the weekend and I made a film, short film. Then I made another one, I made another one, and after he'd made 20 or 30 probably rubbish films, he thought he'd try and make a full-time one. They took a dole check, and everyone in the cast dole check arrived, they bought a beta tape, they made this 50-minute film, and, uh, and then they wrote around, because they forgot to record the sound properly, so they wrote around for a 500-pound grant to do a sound mix, and they got 50 grand to do a 35-mil print, and it was the best film I saw at the festival last mm -hmm. year. And that, that now you can do on your phone without even looking for a grant. You can make anything you like. So the Well Done You short film competition, we're going to be showing that at 3.30 when we announce the winner, but I can tell you that... You're showing that on radio? We're going to show it... Well, what we're going to do... Uh, <laughs> No, it's but the live, the live, people can watch them all on the website now. That's true. And we're going to be showing it with the certificate during the 3.30 news. And if you're live streaming, then you'll be part of that as well. So the directors of all three of the finalists are with us. So we'll introduce them in no particular order. Uh, from Blip and Blob, Grant Holden. From Soundtrack, John Gillespie. And from Bob, Damien Matthews. Give them a round of applause. They're down yeah. in the front row.
So the winner is going to be announced later on, and their film is going to be shown to the audience here on the IMAX screen, complete with its BBFC certificate. And if you're a, a live streamer, then you'll be part of that. It's IMAX. Well. I love the fact that someone shot it on a little phone, and suddenly it's going to be 400 feet high. Uh, Jason, we love having you. The whole show is now going to be in the presence of Can I bring you Jason best Isaac. regards from uh, somebody you're a huge fan of? I've been working with Gore Verbinski for the last three or four months. Wow. M yeah, creator of the Pirates I of the Caribbean. Big, <laughs> big fan of yours and wants to send all of his love, that's obviously. Great. Could, that's could you really just send it straight back? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, that's really nice. Jason, we've got a specially reserved seat for you. Thank you very much. Jason Isaacs, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks a lot. It's 16 minutes past two. This is Five Live, live from Leicester Square. And we, it's now time to bring out the man. And we'll find out whether he's forgotten meeting Jason at the New Year's Eve party. Would you welcome, please, man of the moment, Sam Mendes. <laughs> right, Sam. Yeah. On the sofa of fame. How are you feeling? I'm all right, but I'm, I'm slightly concerned about this whole New Year's Eve party that I just heard <laughs> as I was standing Jay there. Jason's over there behind that light waving at you. Hello, Jason. I'll you tell you without an audience. <laughs> He's sure that you won't remember. He's correct. He has got it. <laughs> and he doesn't remember, Jason. You're perfectly fine. So, Sam, how, what is it like then? You've, you've seen the reviews. The movie is out in a couple of days' time. Are you excited? Are you nervous? Are you scared? Are you cool? Uh, excited. Uh, a bit relieved, because uh, everyone walking around the corridors of the press junket are smiling, which is always a good sign. <laughs> I don't read the reviews, but I get the gist of them, and you can feel it in the air, so it's, it's a, it's a How nice How does that feeling. happen? What does that mean, you get the gist of them? Do, do people wander past and say, five stars in The Guardian? Yeah, they do, actually. <laughs> five stars in The Times. That's Some exactly what they too. do. Yeah, and if, and if it's not five stars or four stars or whatever, then they don't say anything at all. Um, and it's the silence that's very articulate. So you, you do get a sense of it, basically. You genuinely never read them? No, it, it, I, I was just saying this earlier, actually. It's because when I, when I was working in a theatre and I ran the Donmar, I was obsessively reading the reviews. In yeah. the old days of newspapers, where you had to go to King's Cross and read them at one in the morning when they get dropped off at the newsstands, I used to go and sit in the car, literally with my hands shaking, and read every single review of every show that opened at the Donmar. And then we did a play called The Blue Room with Nicole Kidman in 98. And um, it was so skewed, the way that it was reported, the play. Uh, and we got to New York, it went to Broadway, and they printed in Entertainment Weekly a, 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 a seating plan, because she was briefly nude in this play, for those who don't know. So the theatrical Viagra. That, that was, was the yes, that was used, exactly. Yeah. That, uh, that was where the phrase was coined. And... Um, uh, they, in Entertainment Weekly, they printed a, a, a map of the court theatre in New York where you could see more than just her arse. And, and, and I thought, actually, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's made me so upset yeah. and angry. And I stopped. And so as a consequence, I've never read the reviews for any of my movies because I only started making movies just straight after that. So I still haven't read the reviews for American Beauty, for example. They were quite good. But <laughs> I understand they were OK, which is good. But I do look at the aggregate. I, I do sneak a little view about... The, uh, uh, and how many, uh, you know, what the percentage is. So I, I generally keep is up that, that way. Do you get any sense at all as to whether you're on to, you know, whether you've made a good film? I mean, you, you will know artistically yourself whether you're happy with it, but do you get any sense whether you, when you're delivering a blockbuster like this, whether you've done a good job? It's the audience, really. You have to sit with an audience or two 
and, and I, we did two previews. Uh, and that's when you, you really know. And, and then I do get very, very nervous. And, and that is like uh, doing a play. I mean, I, again, my, my experience of it is just sitting with audiences while we do plays. The first preview is always the most terrifying of any play. And it's the same with the movie. And you know whether the jokes are landing. You can tell whether they're engaged. You hopefully can feel whether it's too long. Uh, and, and then, you know, you ask questions at the end. And the way that Barbara and Michael, the producers of Bond, have traditionally done it is a really civilised way, which is that you basically uh, get 200 people in a, in a room. Uh, they have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And then you sit at, at lunch with them afterwards, 10 to a table, and you go round from table to table, and you just ask them questions. And it's incredible how many opinions there are and how, how truthful people are when you're just looking face to face. I much prefer that to the whole, you know... Uh, LA style, uh, uh, you know, national research charts. group where they fill in the charts and the mm -hmm. forms, and you get, you know, it's all kind of uh, uh, aggregated. It then becomes a bunch of stats. You know, that that's really tricky. I think. Do you have to do all that? The previews? Any of it? I mean, why why does it have to be you shown? You, 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 like why that? does it have to be shown? Yeah. Well, it doesn't. I mean, I think there there are a number of directors who don't like to preview their movies. Uh, for me, it doesn't feel like it exists until it is in front of a, an audience. And I feel very nervous if I haven't shown it. I've only done that once, actually. And, and in fact... Which film was that? I, I didn't preview Revolutionary Road. Uh, and I can't even remember why, actually, at the moment. But I, one of the things that DreamWorks did when we made American Beauty was... And it was Spielberg. He said, I would advise you not to preview this movie because you won't get an accurate response. It's such an unusual film. And I remember saying, actually, I quite like to because I just like to see it in front of an audience one time. And I did make changes after that because I could feel where jokes weren't landing or things were taking a little too long. Um, so for me, it's kind of, that's the birth of the film. Have you ever done the Stanley Kubrick thing of going into a cinema, a local cinema that was playing your film, just going in anonymously and sitting at the back and watching it play? Absolutely, yeah. And that is a real thrill. Well, it, it, I mean, it can be. <laughs> you know, I remember, I, 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 yeah, I did that with American Beauty. I did it with Skyfall. I did it with the IMAX, uh, the BFI. And that was a huge thrill, absolutely jammed. And in a, in a way, I mean, you know, look, however much you think the preview audience is a real audience, it, it's not really. They know that you're there the first audience to see the movie. And so they're tense and they're over-scrutinizing story because they think they're going to be asked about it afterwards and they, they're worried that they're going to miss something. So they, they, they second-guess it a little bit. So you never really see it with an honest audience unless you do walk in the back of a proper you know, cinema and they're not aware you're there and they don't feel that they're any way important. They're just there to enjoy it. And what did you learn from the screening of, of, of which Spectre? Um, I learned that, that the story was fundamentally clear, except for two or three uh, points, which I can't reveal now because uh, no, the, the people in this uh, cinema haven't seen it and I wouldn't want to ruin it, but I, I, it was very useful. And I definitely went in. I think they're most useful when you go in asking specific questions. You know, did you understand that? You know, is that clear? Does that go on too long? You know, did you believe that relationship? You know? And they'll answer you very clearly if you, if you lead them to it. Um, and, uh, and so I did, and I, I felt that they were very clear on a number of points, and I made some changes, significant changes after that. In the interview with Daniel Craig, which we're going to show about 10 to 4, a bit later on, he certainly suggests that you were still editing on Saturday. Yeah, I wasn't editing on Saturday, but <laughs> I, I did finish the movie on Saturday. And that's exactly, weirdly, the same time scale as I made Skyfall. I finished on a Saturday, and it, it came out, or rather, it, the press screening was on a Wednesday, so it was exactly the same. And on Saturday, I was tweaking various uh, sound effects. And, what did you uh, do? What did you do on Saturday? Then you thought, no, that's it, I'm now finished. 
if you really want to know, I was sta staring at a particular shot right at the beginning of the movie uh, as Bond and a girl are entering an elevator. And I felt it was glitching because I had sped up the shot and there was, in fact, a couple of tiny glitches in the visual effect uh, rendering of that shot, which I, I think I'm not giving away when I say it's actually a four-and-a-half-minute shot. A touch of evil. Movie. A touch of... Thank you very much. Uh, there's a compliment. So... The, the, and that was what I was looking at. And I was also tweaking a couple of lines of ADR that I felt sounded like ADR. So, you know, I was right up to the last minute. Did you just you know, want to explain ADR? Another two weeks. Did you just explain ADR? A ADR is, is dialogue replacement. In other words, it's, it's when you've not got a clear take, uh, um, audio take of the line, and so the actor comes into a studio uh, later on and re-records that line, and you have to drop it in. So it has to be perfectly in sync with their lift mo lip movements. But also... It has to sound like it, it exists and lives and exists in the, in the space with the scene. And that's often the most difficult thing. Not that it's not in sync, but that it's not in the scene. It's not in the room with them. So it's often about the way the air around the line sounds. And it can take a long time. And you need a very good dialogue editor and you need a very good sound mixer, both of which we have. But, and I'm very meticulous and, and, and frankly, pedestrian about these things. And but you need it longer, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, you know, they say like, well, you know, on every director's tombstone, it's just going to say two more weeks, you know, <laughs> and uh, it will on mine as well. So we need to, we need to show a clip. Um, can you, you need to. You don't really want to, Simon. You just need to. No, 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 no. We really, really do. Uh, and uh, if you need to re-edit in any way, then Good. if you just pop back... Could I just nip up there now? Uh, don't, don't tempt me. Sure <laughs> just before, before we play, just give us a... For people who just ha don't know even vaguely what the story is... Just give us a flavour before we play the clip. What was the clip? The clip is going to be with uh, Christoph Waltz in the uh, glass... In the glassy corridor. Glass corridor. Oh, right, OK. So Bond's made it all the way to, um, to, to Oberhauser's... Uh, uh, shall we call it a layer? I think yes. we probably should. I think so. Um, yeah. It's glassy and threatening. Yeah. It's a layer, yeah. Sam. You can... You <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's it. That's, that's all you it. need that, to know, really. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Let's play you the clip. Information <coughs> is all. Is it not? For example, you must know by now that the double O program is officially dead. <laughs> Which leads me to speculate exactly why you came. So, James, why did you come? I came here to kill you. And I thought you came here to die. Well, it's all a matter of perspective. Sure that the ADR was quite 100 percent there. It's a little out of, it was a little out of sync. I'm glad it was playing on the radio. <laughs> did you did you did you watch that and enjoy it, or did you watch it and criticise it in your head? Well, it was out of sync. I, I, it makes me literally. It, I, I can't say what it makes me want to do. No, <laughs> I, um, it, it, no it, it, it's that thing of I do find it almost impossible after you finish it sure. to watch it for a while actually and get any kind of perspective but no i, I, I feel fine about it. slightly detached what are the things about making bond that you enjoy, enjoy the most because obviously after skyfall there was a period when you know you, you weren't going to do another one and mm. then you know then you were called back and obviously the, you know you do love the story but what is it that you like and what is it about it if anything that you don't like doing i mean huge massive productions the logistics alone are fairly mind-boggling what do you enjoy doing and what puts you off well, you know, it's, it's the best analogy I can find for, for directing Bond is like if, if you're a surfer, you know, and you're, you're, you're looking for the big wave and you're going to get wiped out 
nine times out of ten, but when you catch the big wave, it's like nothing else. It's exhilarating, you know. And um, you have to be willing to be wiped out, you know. And the big wave for me was something like Mexico City, where, you know, I've got 2,000 extras and nine cameras and three helicopters and the spirit and the energy and the exuberant, just the, just the human endeavor of it, the, the, the love of movies, of Bond movies, the excitement to be part of a contemporary mythology, you know, the feeling of, of um, collective excitement. That is very unlike any other movie I've ever worked on because they feel they know what they're part of. And, and, and normally in a movie, they, they don't. I mean, it's as simple as that. You, you just don't, they don't know. That it's, it's a story. They're not allowed to read the script. So that kind of energy, riding that wave of, 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 of energy is very exciting. And that, I, I don't think I'll ever have that again, you know, uh, because you only get that when an audience knows what they're part of. Uh, and so that, that's very exciting. You know, you said the, the downsides. It's a very public, you know, directing is a very private thing in many ways. You know, it's a, it's a private relationship between you and the crew, you and the actors. You know, at the center of however crazy uh, the movie is, is, is should be a, a very private space. Um, and it's almost impossible to create on a Bond movie. You know, it, you just have to pick up the megaphone and shout. You know, that's the only way to do things sometimes. And to try and find that is very difficult. And I, and, and I won't miss the public event aspect of it. And, the, and also the public dialogue, because you have to embrace the fact that making a movie is a dialogue from the moment that the title is announced the press conference, the song, the trailers, everything is going to be part of the dialogue with the audience, which is as it should be, right? But sometimes it would be nice to not be in a dialogue while you're making a film, yeah. but only when you've done it. You know? Did the success of the last movie make it more difficult for you on this one? Was it in any... I mean, obviously, it was a stunning success, the most successful British movie of all time, which is a wonderful rocket fuel into this, but also must be a, well, how do we follow that mm. moment? It's a pressure, you know, I, I would be lying to pretend it wasn't, but it's, um, it made it easier to make this film, there's no question, because in, on the last movie, you know, there was a definite feeling, there was great respect on set, you know, yeah, we, we like what you've done, and, you know, you've made some interesting movies, but can you really do one of these movies? Can you do action? Can yeah. you... And, um, and so even, and to run up until we wrapped, I felt there was a, a respectful, but a slight distance, a slight... Um, uh, a lack of uh, connection between me and the crew. Whereas on this one, they were all wearing their Skyfall jackets. You know, they, they would have done anything. And the, the, the feeling of being lifted on their shoulders is, was really, it was fantastic, actually. It was very moving, and I felt it every day, you know. And when you've got a movie of this scale, which requires this much of people, you need that, because, you know, it, it, it was, it was back-breaking most of the time. I mean, look, it's only a movie, and it's there to create joy and to transport people. Uh, but for a lot of people involved in it, you know, it really felt like life and death. And um, to see the crew's faces in Mexico or in Morocco, you know, uh, in the desert or, or in Rome or in, in the Alps, the excitement and the feeling of ownership, that, that, was, that was really good. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that they were proud of the last movie and they actually believed that I could do it. <laughs> I know that sounds yeah. crazy, but those, those things affect you as a director. It's 2.31, this is Five Live. If you're waiting for the news and sport, that'll be on its way, but we're just making the most of our time with Sam Mendes while he's here because he is the man of the moment, and his movie <laughs> is opening uh, on Monday, and it's very exciting. Just remind us of the name of that movie in case we, we missed it. It's Expected. It, that's it, opening Monday. That's great. <laughs> and you'll hear from Daniel Craig just a little bit, uh, a little bit later on. And Daniel Craig is a co-producer. 
Yes. Which means what? Well, he's kind of been a co-producer. He's been a producer on, on all the movies of sorts. He's very, very involved in the bits that are not to do with him. I mean, I think that's, that's for me, what it means anyway, which is that, you know, he is more than... He, he's not just about what he does. Um, he's involved in the creation of the script and, and the crewing and, uh, you know, inextricably linked to the actual making of the film in a way that uh, was beyond the call of duty. You know, he cares a lot about everything. Um, and uh, I think it was out of, it was acknowledgement of the work that he'd done over the last 10 years that, that made Barbara and Michael give him that credit. When you say input in the script, I mean, often, I mean, what does that mean? Do you mean there are lines in there that he wrote himself or it's to do with the shaping of the script? What does input in the script from an actor's point of view mean? It's to do with the shaping of the script, you know, seeing it at a very early stage, having input, uh, and it's often story points. Um, and then right the way down to having the freedom. And I was... You know, we, we, we were definitely in sync on this movie because, you know, we'd been through the last movie together and we had a working relationship that felt like we were picking up where we left off. And I said to him right at the beginning, if you think of something, try it. Just try it. Don't talk to me about it. Don't ask me about it. Just go for it. And uh, there was a lot of stuff that came, that was improvised on the day, lines that came to him, moments. And sometimes he would do it slightly uncertainly and I would say, that's great. You know, now say it so I can hear it. I mean, it's a great line. His instinct about it, you know, you've played a role for 10 years, you have a sense of what might might not work. The worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work, and I say, I don't, you know. But and often he would say, oh, that was rubbish, you know, I would not do that again, and he would know already. But that's the thing you wouldn't expect on a production that big, that there is space for improvising or, you know, changing things around on camera. You would think that because it's such a big production, by the time you get to the set, everything is locked, everything is set. But it sounds like you have quite a sort of a free-form relationship when you're actually there who was it said it was it james brown you probably know this who said keep it loose but keep it tight you know <laughs> and, and i think that's what you feel you want to you want to create a shape that can support you but when you're actually in front of the camera you need to be free any actor needs to be free you can't just be held to every full stop and comma but i was also inspired by i, I remember watching probably as a kid actually or certainly much before i made movies uh, an interview with spielberg about indiana jones where he said we made a lot of that stuff up on the day. You, you have to stay free because, you know, a lot of what makes you laugh there... I mean, famously, the moment where Indy pulls out a gun and shoots the guy who's coming at him with a sword was, was done on the day because Harrison was injured. And, and that sort of thing does happen a lot. In fact, there's a whole section of the opening sequence that happened because Daniel did his knee and couldn't run. And, mm -hmm. and, and I had 10 minutes to work out an alternative version of events, and it involved... 60 Mexican cops, and I said to my first AD, Michael Lerman, I said, find me 60 cops. He said, we, you didn't want any cops. You haven't got any background cops. I said, find me real cops. You know, you become a sort of... You know, I'm person. Sam Mendes, don't exactly. you? Exactly. <laughs> Give me 60 Mexican cops now. <laughs> and sure enough, there they were, you know, looking slightly alarmed and sweaty. And uh, I lined the streets with them, and it, it made sense of them walking through that section rather than running. And that was just, that's just one of many examples of how you just have to... Be prepared for anything. However much you plan, it will go wrong. But is it possible to step down for that? If you've been on a set in which you can click your fingers and say, find me 60 Mexican cops, and they do, <laughs> and then you come off set and you're just, you know, is it possible, to, or do you walk around the street bossing people around saying, find me a bus? Find yeah. me a... <laughs> it, it, I'm unfortunate. I'll tell you the honest truth. It does affect you slightly when you're doing it because you, you do... I mean, I remember we had a week off, which was actually incredible in the middle of production because Daniel was injured. And we had nothing to shoot. And so I, I went traveling uh, uh, with my son on my own for a week. And I, I had to go find him. 
and I got off the plane, and there was no one there to meet me. And, and my instinct was, where is everybody? You know, <laughs> I'm sort of, it completely infantilizes you. you know? During that part, it was like, yeah, where's my coffee? I can't make a cup of coffee. And you think, what, what, what the hell? What, what are you talking about? You know, but you do, you get so used to just focusing on what you're doing that day and everyone else sort of falling into line. You do have to re-educate yourself when you come back into humanity. You know? On the subject of the, of the story, and there's some things, uh, as you've already alluded to, that we can say, and there are some things that you can't say because it's all going to be explained uh, in the movie, but maybe we could illustrate this with reference to Skyfall. Do you have to ask permission to do things like kill off Judy Dench, for example? Do you, does that have to get referred up? So if you're making... There was someone in the audience who didn't know that. From I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I apologise. It's kind of part of this story, so I think it's probably fine. Are there any points in your script for this or in your story where you go, I better check... Yes, yes. Do I need to check this? Yeah, the big things were... But for me, the big things were... The, the, not the deal breakers, exactly, but the reasons that I, I was interested in telling the story. You know... And the equivalent to use a Skyfall would have been, you know, are you okay for me to, you know, nearly kill Bond and to acknowledge his aging throughout the movie? Are you okay for me to kill a major character off? Um, and it was there, the fact that they embraced that that made me excited to do the movie in the first place. Um, and the same thing happened on this. There were, there were the bigger story points, um, which for me were the reasons that I ended up doing it uh, because, I, you know, I thought, well, if I can tell this story, then I'm interested to do the movie. And, but everyone has to be behind that. Well, I mean, the key personnel, i.e. Michael and Barbara and, and Daniel, uh, because you know, I, can't, I can't do it on my own. So th in that respect, it's, it's, it's unusual in one regard. But, you know, um, however much control you may have as a director, you still have to ask, if you're sort of playing with someone else's money uh, you know, at the roulette table, and you do have to say, do you mind if I put it all on black? You know? um, uh, and they have to go, all right, well, you know, <laughs> good luck. Um, uh, you know, if they say no, you can't. Uh, and so you do have to, you know, walk the knife edge. Did they say no to anything? They, they, no. I mean, nothing that I, I felt was pivotal. Uh, they're very good at saying that doesn't feel like Bond. And because they don't uh, meddle and micromanage, when they do have something to say, you listen. So, and their, their sense of what is and isn't appropriate for him as a character particularly is, is unerring. So it was always useful. Now, I, we'll hear the Daniel Craig interview in about an hour's time, and Mark's review also is going to be, unless you want to hear a brief version. Well, I don't want no. to spoil it for them. No, but okay. <laughs> Do you want to give them a thumbs up or thumbs down? <laughs> okay. That's right. so Could you tell which way it was? But by <laughs> um, I didn't ask that because you have very limited time at these, uh, at these events. Just had a few minutes with Daniel, and I didn't ask him about what he's going to do next just because everybody else has been asking him. So I'm just going to say this, and, then I'm just, and you can react in any way that you want. I got the feeling at the end of the movie that you and him might go, I don't think we can top that. Well, look, I, I don't want to give away the ending of the movie. That, that's the crucial thing. Uh, he's a girl. <laughs> I missed that. I must have nodded off. And why no one saw it coming. In, why weren't you around in pre-production? <laughs> When we were working on and I'm obviously not tempting you to do it anyway. I just felt there was a sense yeah. of completion, that's all that, I'm saying. There, there is, and that is deliberate. And, and you, know, I think, um, you, you know, I think we were both aware of that, and that was something that we were both eager to achieve as well. But equally, at the end of Skyfall, you know, you both seem to... So, you know, it's, isn't, it's never say never. Sorry, but, and no pun intended, but... It was, but it... Um, uh, uh, true, and, and I made the mistake last time of answering at exactly this stage when I was exhausted and you know not had had no distance on it, 
And so, of course, I, I'll say what I should have said then, which is, you know, I'll let the movie play out and, and take six months and all that kind of stuff. But um, it, 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 I felt very possessive of the characters we created in Skyfall. I felt very possessive of M and Moneypenny and Q and that we'd brought those people on board. And I wanted to tell the second half of their story and the second half of, of, of Bond's story. And, and I felt we'd teed it up. And that was really one of the things what, that I wanted to play out in this movie. It's a to tonally, I think, a very different film, very deliberately so. It's apples and oranges. I love Skyfall, but I felt there was a choice. Do you want to make the same kind of movie again, tonally, or do you want to make something completely different? And this is a much more, I think, I hope, flamboyant film, more mischievous, um, more varied in tone. And, and that was entirely deliberate, and it's something that I really, I think both Daniel and I really love doing. Well, in my opinion... It's completely fabulous. And you'll hear Thank what Mark you. thinks in the next hour. Ladies and gentlemen, you, Sam Mendes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. You can see Jason on the way back, on the way out. See if you remember him. Sam Mendes. OK, so we're holding on to the news and sport just for the end of Sam. Uh, we are going to do a uh, box office top ten, yes. and we, also, we are going to talk about Spectre. What other films are going to be reviewed? Uh, Mississippi Grind, we're going to talk about Paper Planes, we're going to talk about, and maybe The Last Witch Hunter. Welcome back to Leicester Square, They're, and uh, an extraordinary audience and an extraordinary guest, Mark, as I'm sure you'll notice. That. Yeah, I thought Sam Mendes was uh, fantastically relaxed. I mean, considering we are just in the open, you know, the few days before uh, Spectre opens with so much riding on it, he seemed to be in very good spirits. Very cool. Well, because he's got the gist. He's got the gist of the he's reviews, got the and he's heard the about air. the five stars, so yeah. It's fine. Uh, Daniel Craig uh, coming up later. The live stream genuinely worth watching. It's a beautiful cinema. Uh, we thank the good staff at the Empire here for letting us come in and the, and the incredibly good-looking audience that have been let in. Some They are fabulously attractive, aren't there they? There are a few cosplayers in there very boldly coming out in various bits of costume. We'll have the result of the Well Done You competition. More mystery guests on the way. But we need to do the box office top ten and do the number one and do the odd review. Though I'm imagining the, the films that are out this week will be the ones that are kind of... If you don't want to see Bond, here's something that's yes, very different. And also opening yes. this week. Are they kind of all rubbish? No. There's some good stuff in there as well? There is, yeah. And some rubbish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, Vin Diesel. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> At number 10 this week is Everest. Which, you know, if you're going to see it, see it on a... We're here in front of a massive, great big IMAX screen. That's the way to see it. It is definitely something which is visually arresting. I'm not entirely sure that it's much more than that. It does tell the true story fairly honestly. Um, but but it, it's a film that you see for the visual spectacle rather than anything else. And uh, number nine is The Lobster. See, I really like The Lobster. And, I mean, it's interesting because it's Jorgos Lantimos' uh, first English-language film, and he made uh, Dogtooth and Alps. And the story is it's set in a sort of you know, parallel or near future in which you have to be a couple, that's the law, and uh, Colin Farrell gets sent to a hotel where if he doesn't find a mate within 45 days, he'll be turned into the animal of his choice, which is, in his case, a lobster. So it's sort of absurd, it's black comedy, but it's also it's about relationships and what relationships mean to people and what they mean to, to society and how we conform to those things. And, you know, really sort of stellar cast, uh, John C. Riley and Ben Whishaw, of course, and uh, Rachel Weisz. I, I like it very much. It's funny, most people, I think, think, as I do, that it sort of loses its way a little bit in the second half. The first half all takes place in the hotel, the second half takes place in the woods. But there is so much good stuff in that first half to justify or to get over the, the, the problems of the second half. David Craven on an email. Uh, Sadly, the lobster may well not make it into the top ten. Well, it has, it has it's sneaked in at number nine. Having watched the trailer, I thought that 
Well, that looks like an endearing piece of whimsy. Having now seen the film itself, whimsy is the one word I would not apply. Yeah. I tried to sit down and assign a genre. I came up with darkly comical, satirical, romantic, surrealist, sci-fi, fantasy, horror. About lobsters. I, I loved it. I loved it. At times, I turned away. At times, I laughed out loud. Frequently, those laughs were immediately followed by a pang of guilt at what I was laughing at. So, missold by the trailer, but a wonderful film with something to say about the human condition, harrowing but rewarding. There is a sense of sort of Nigel Neal horror in there. I mean, amidst the... the, the, the a sense the, of what? Nigel Neal kind of horror. What you does know. that mean? Oh, OK, well, the short version is so... It's, it's envisaging a futuristic society, or you know, near future, or maybe parallel society, the whole function of which is actually to tell us things about the way things are really now. So the pain in it is real, despite the fact that it has this completely surreal premise. Excellent, thank you. Um, well, no, because normally when you say briefly, you usually mean the exact opposite. Yeah, I know. Right, right. Uh, so that's the lobster at number nine. The intern is at number eight. Briefly? It's all right. OK, that's fine. <laughs> Legend at seven. I mean, still uh, in there, still in the, in the top ten, and uh, largely, I think, on, the, on account of uh, Tom Hardy's dual performances. I was just watching recently David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, which Jeremy Irons plays uh, identical twins, and I was thinking of that when I, I first saw Legend. Legend itself, the film, has some problems. It is very much a sort of glossy Hollywood story, but Tom Hardy's performances are terrific and are cl still clearly drawing a crowd. And number six is Sicario. See, I think this is... Have you seen this yet? No. Nope. You should go and see it. It's, I mean, it's a really, really tense thriller. De De Dennis Villeneuve does a brilliant job of directing it, a fantastic sense of performance by Emily Blunt. It's a story which is not unfamiliar, which is about drug cartels across the Mexico-America uh, border, and we have seen that done in dramas and on television and indeed in documentaries. But what it comes down to with this is it's brilliantly directed. There are sequences in it which are real, you know, chew your knuckles, edge-of-your-seat tension. Um, it's it's one of those films that you go and see for the pleasure of watching a well-made film rather than perhaps you know, seeing a completely original story. And really terrific performances. And as I've said before, the most nail-biting traffic jam you'll ever see. Uh, Laura listening in Dubai. My husband has been listening to your programme for over 10 years. I listen alongside from time to time. And now our 14-year-old daughter likes to listen to... She says, it's pretty good. Sorry. For a 14-year-old, that's a five-star. I'm writing because last week we saw two movies back-to-back. -back. On Thursday, my husband and I saw Sicario, and on Friday, the whole family went to The Martian. Both are excellent films, compelling, well-executed and well-acted, but, but there was a huge contrast that really struck me. In Sicario, human life... One of them's on Mars and one of them's on Earth. Apart from that, <laughs> in Sicario, human life is almost worthless, and in The Martian, it is priceless, as evidenced by the fact that one life was worth risking five others, plus vast amounts of time and money. Such striking opposites. So it's no surprise that Sicario is depressing and very good, and The Martian is uplifting. Sicario convinces us that some things are irreversibly hopeless as the ending on the football field drives home. The Martian tells us we should never stop striving and hoping anything is possible. So which is true, says Laura. My answer, for what it's worth, given that The Martian is total fiction, I guess I'd have to say that we want to hope despite the grim realities. Uh, I think that's true. I particularly love The Martian just because it spawned a pun that somebody sent me in the thing said that The Martian's tagline should be poo-tatoes. <laughs> that's, that's very good. I like that. So Sicario's at number six, Crimson Peak's at five. Well, I, you know, I love Crimson Peak. You and I are going to slightly fall out about this because you don't feel as strongly about it as I do. I, I love Guillermo del Toro, and I know that you're a fan of Pan's Labyrinth, but um, I think it is a really, really adventurous uh, gothic romance with horror elements. Uh, I, 
I've met so many... It, it's, it's proved really divisive. People either feel the same way as I do about it, which is that you're totally swept away by the design and by the story and by the complexity and the richness and the depthness of it, or you think it's a bit camp. And I, that's the thing that, that, that I can't quite understand. The, the, the poster is a problem. I think a lot of people are put off by the fact the poster does look, as you said, like the Adams family. But it is a real properly rich gothic romance about um, you, you know, secrets and lies in which the ghosts are both metaphorical and actually real and tangible. The, des- the costume design is wonderful. I think the performances are terrific. I think Tom Hiddleston is great as Sir Thomas Sharp, who you know the minute he walks in the room that he's not to be trusted, and yet it's a complex character. You weren't so crazy about it. Uh, my view is entirely summed up by this uh, email from Matthew Graham in New Zealand. Watching Crimson Peak, I was riveted and faintly disappointed. I think there's a simple reason for this, and it, that is it's not Pan's Labyrinth. While Guillermo del Toro's latest film has plenty of monsters and mayhem, it misses those moments of real human warmth that made Pan's Labyrinth so great. There are no heroic sacrifices, no heartfelt reunions, no scenes of, simply mo- of simple motherly love. Crimson Peak is a film that is cold to the touch. That being said, it was an engrossing and original horror film, and following Guillermo del Toro and Tom Hiddleston into their fantasy was both spine-chilling and terrific. Catherine Hurst on this email... I uh, just been to an IMAX screening of Crimson Peak on a suitably dark and stormy evening. We were anticipating a gorgeous to look at gothic chiller, sumptuous set design, stunning costumes, ripe melodramatic acting. We got all of that, but why did we both leave feeling let down? The storyline felt tired, <laughs> flat, utterly predictable. I thought Guillermo del Toro, of all people, would bring something new to the genre, but it felt like a tired retread of stories Alfred Hitchcock told nearly 70 years ago, and Hitchcock did it with more twists turns and surprises. But that's bizarre because, I mean, if, you know, if you're looking for other directors that it refers to, it's, you know, it's, th- there's more there of, you know, David Lean or... Uh, it's, it's a lot of... I mean, there are, funny, there, there are a couple of fleeting nods to Hitchcock, but they're not sort of based in the... De- Here's my advice to whoever it was that sent that email. Go back and see it again and then keep watching it until you realise <laughs> how good it is. No, because they're right. False consciousness, again, that's what, this is what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, or just being plain wrong. OK. Uh, Pan is at number three. Are you Pete? skipping over The Martian? Oh, OK, no, The Martian's at number four. Well, you know, I love The Martian. I think The Martian's really good fun. And the, the, the lovely thing about it was, was it was a demonstration that Ridley Scott does his best work when he has a really good script. The, the novel, apparently, which I haven't read, but people who have read it say it's, you know, it's, it's a terrific piece of work. What the screenplay does is take all those internal, uh, internal monologues and turn them into something dramatic. I think Matt Damon is really charming and engaging. The film looks terrific, which is what you expect from Scott, but it's such a pleasure after Prometheus and after Exodus and after these, these films which you really wanted them to be better films than they were to get The Martian, which just comes along, and it's a romp, and it's, you know, and it's uplifting. And as that email said before, it is about you know, rooting for the underdog and everyone going back to get the one guy. Uh, Pan's at number three? I think Pan was pants. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, it's one of those weird things. It is like the hook factor, which is that you know, when Steven Spielberg was on our show and he said he wanted to go back and watch Hook because he wanted to see if there was anything in it that he liked at all... Well, I kind of felt the same way watching Pan. I hadn't even seen it the first time. I felt like I was looking for stuff to like. And I think it's a very hard film to like because in the end, 
it's like a meringue. It's it's you know it's all surface. There's nothing. There's nothing underneath it. It's a bit Mad Maxi and it's a bit Happy Feet and it's a bit Pants. Pants at number three. Uh, suffragettes at number two. Well, Suffragettes, are, I, I think, is a really solid piece of filmmaking, telling a very important story. You know, very well written by Abby Morgan, who came on the program and did a, a terrific job of combining history and fiction. Um, I don't know that it's the most thrilling piece of cinema that's currently around, but I think it's you know it's really worth seeing because the story is so engaging and it does a pretty good job of telling you the history. And uh, the number one by a long, long way is Hotel Transylvania Two. Yeah. <laughs> number one by a big. It's like Hotel way. Transylvania One, but like. Yeah. Go and see it again. See how wrong. Thank you, you are. very much. Yeah. There you go. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. So. Don't encourage That's him. That's the box office top ten of the Hotel Transylvania number two. So uh, we need to get a review on yeah. because we've got lots of big guests coming up after the news. Well, so let's do Mr. B. Grind, which is from the filmmakers who uh, made uh, Half Nelson back in 2006. Uh, and this is a film that sort of refers back to those 70s movies like California Split and Five Easy Pieces and also um, The Gambler the, because there's a James Toback connection. So the story is two guys, uh, Ryan Reynolds... Uh, uh, is the sort of the, 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 the charismatic guy. Ben Mendelsohn is more down at heel. They meet at a poker table and they form a bond in which Ben Mendelsohn, who is very much you know, on, the, on, the, on the downside of his luck, starts to think that Ryan Reynolds is, in fact, his lucky charm. Here's a clip. You walking in the door while I'm calling you on the telephone is a sign. I'm telling you, it's a sign. Okay, look what happened to me after you left last night. What is that? In the parking lot? Some guy cut. Are you okay? It's not, it's not, it's not serious. Did you know the guy? Getting out. Uh, yeah, yeah, I knew him. Yeah, we, we play some softball on the weekend. That's a fair question. Oh, it's okay. not a fair question. That he hurt? was mugging. That's got to hurt my head. It stings a little bit. But what I'm getting at, hey, hey, Curtis, what I'm trying to get at here is that good things happen when you're around and when, when you're not, when you leave, <laughs> you get stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking, you know, that home game, uh, New Orleans, dissociated guy. Tony Roundtree, boom, I want it. The game has a $25,000 buy-in, Jerry. Which is a lot. Yep, it's a lot. I got a plan. Listen. You can see from that, I mean, it has that sort of loose-limbed feel. It's, you know, long takes in which the performances are really allowed to breathe. And essentially, it's a kind of, uh, it's, it's a male romance between these two uh, middle-aged characters who are, you know, variously washed up and yet also chasing a rainbow. Actually, the film opens with a rainbow. And for the, most of the film, they're sort of chasing it. And it sort of year-by-year year recedes before them. What I like about it is, firstly, it's, you know, it's very bittersweet. There are moments in it that are very funny and moments in it that are very charming. But it does have an underlying sense of melancholy Melancholy and you know and poignancy and a real sense of loss about it. It's beautifully done in terms of location because what happens is they head off down the Mississippi going on towards this this game which may change their life, this sort of high stakes game. And yet we don't see the standard vistas that you would see with gambling movies. This is not to do with um, you know glitzy neon. This is not to do with Vegas or Atlantic City. These are boarded up frontages. These are kind of places that are in a very harsh light and a very, very run down in which you're finding a sort of lost spirit, again, throwing back very much towards the 70s. The performances are really great. Ben Mendelsohn in particular is wonderful. He has this sort of this constant sense of being slightly in motion. It's almost like a, a punch-drunk sensibility. In the film, the, the, the cinematography sort of mirrors that. And you spend time in their company and you share their triumphs and their tragedies and you want things to work out for them even though you understand that they're on a sort of tragic curve. 
And I, I really enjoyed it, not least because it's the kind of filmmaking that doesn't happen anymore. It's a very old-fashioned film, but I say that in a good way. Uh, you can get involved, 85058. You can email me at bbc.co.uk. We're live from Leicester Square, and there'll be more in the next hour. You're listening to Five Live. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome back to the Empire Leicester Square in front of our selected audience of five entertainers who are here. They have had a rich hour with a top ten. Sam Mendes as Sam our Mendes. special guest. How about that? How, how cool and relaxed was he? He was fantastic. Uh, it is being live streamed, so wherever you are, if you go to the Five Live website, you can see the whole thing. Uh, the big IMAX stage behind us, the beautiful Wittertainees, some of them in cosplay. Some special mystery guests coming up uh, in this hour. Daniel Craig is going to be on what Mark thinks of Spectre. Wouldn't it be really, really embarrassing if he hated it? <laughs> But of course, that I just I didn't realise well when, I, when I did, I did the, that you could see which way my hand was up. I'm sorry, so that was, so it wasn't very secret. Gave well, the gave, thumbs up or the thumbs down, people could see. Well, they could. Well, maybe they couldn't. I just bought it anyway. Carry on, <laughs> as you were. Uh, if there are any highlights, well, of course there are going to be, because Sam Mendes was a highlight. We're put in, putting them all together, and it's going to be on iPlayer uh, as well, so you can relive all the uh, the moments uh, when you get home. That's going to be up uh, later on today. So um, we've got a whole hour here at the uh, Empire Leicester Square and refreshments have been taken they have. during the news and the sport, travel, weather and uh, BBC propaganda, which we like to put out at times like this, during which time um, a rather nice uh, teapot uh, has come out on a tray. A whole tea set. A, a whole tea set. <laughs> Complete absence of tea, though, I have to say. <laughs> so uh, we're not, uh, we can't afford those kind of things yeah. uh, anymore. You might have read about that. We are. We could do some food, though. We could. I, we are lacking something because it's tea and tea and cake. Tea and it? cake. Tea and cake. Wouldn't surely? it be fabulous if just someone Somebody in our audience cake. might have just brought some cake? Has anyone actually brought some cake? <laughs> There's a hand up at the front here. <laughs> Hang on a second. Is that Flora Shedden from Bake Off? It is. Come here, Flora, with your cake. <laughs> Keen wittertainee that she is. Semi-finalist, the youngest semi-finalist, Flora Shedden. <laughs> Hello, go. Flora. There's a cake for Jason Isaacs. It's a cake for Jason Isaacs? Yes. Have you been I sitting next to that, Jason? I uh, thinks about meringues the same way I do. <laughs> <laughs> Is it, right, so you've just been talking to Jason about meringues. <laughs> No, no uh, Mark oh, doesn't like a meringue, said, no, which um, is I'm, a relieved I used it as a derogatory term. I said it's a big meringue. Yes. You have so many Were you not paying attention during that fantastic film review that I was doing? Probably not. Clearly not. No. We have lots of derogatory terms. Anyway, Flora, yes, during Bake Off, while it was being broadcast, yes. you were getting in contact with us and saying that I think you were baking and listening to the programme, is that right? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, 2 a.m.s in my kitchen listening to you pair naturally, which was great. I loved it. While you were baking? While I was baking, I went through a lot of the podcasts, having kind of listened to recent ones and... I discovered your review of Sex and City. Ah. Um, and at the time, I was making follivons, and I got to the point where I thought, well, it doesn't matter. It's never going to be that bad, is it? So it's <laughs> fine. I can, I can get through everything now. Uh, tell us about this cake that you've uh, created. So this is us. a chocolate cake, uh, a Bruce Bogtrotter chocolate cake. So Bruce Bogtrotter? Yeah, from Matilda. Okay. So, yeah, yeah one of you has to eat it all in one go. It is the enormous. Class. Mark, Mark <laughs> how would you describe This is like the size of a top hat. This is just a small cake for four. Uh, yeah. No. No, I, don't, I, I really for don't For four think years? So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
popcorn for obvious reasons. Yeah. Okay, so it's glazed, so like it's glazed with like toffed popcorn, is it? Yeah, candied salted popcorn. So what else? What else have you put in it? And it is just a chocolate fest and caramel inside as well. How many of these hungry witetainees do you think you could feed? <laughs> Jason is leaning forward some. eagerly. Yeah, <laughs> he sort of put dibs on some of it yeah. already. I'll have the top off. Oh, what does it say on the top? It's got a little sign on the top. Just Hello to Jason, Jason Isaac, Isaac. Which kind of means it's yours, Jason. That's Absolutely. Kind of like, it's yeah. the whole thing is for Jason. <laughs> exactly. uh, so, um, losing semi-finalists, but presumably yeah. that counts in your... as a blistering result. I mean, obviously not as good as winning, but... <laughs> to state the obvious. No, that's but you're true. But you're the youngest semi-finalist ever. Isn't it? Yeah, so it was great fun. I'm quite knackered at that point. We went to the finals going... <sighs> can't be bothered anymore. So no. Just you get you on, you crack on, away, guys. Yeah. So, what, so what happens now? Because you come from a, uh, a big family of bakers and so on. So what, what's, the, what's the future for you? Yeah, so I am uh, pottering around in the kitchen quite a lot at the moment. I'm doing a book, which is great fun, and um, procrastinating massively by escaping to the cinema at three o'clock, which is kind of still a standard habit of mine. What and have you seen that you've liked? I saw Macbeth this week. Ah, and? Which... I really liked, but um, I am uh, from the Highlands of Scotland, and I grew up in Dunkeld and Burnham, Burnham being Burnham Wood, yes. where uh, Macbeth is featured. And so we studied at school relentlessly, and we just studied the landscape and the scenery because it was ours, and we were like, yeah, this is, this is our thing. We can talk about that. Um, so from that point of view, I thought it was completely fantastic because that's what I'd studied. And I saw Kenneth Branagh doing it. We did it in Manchester, didn't he? Did the theatre one. And that was excellent, and that was maybe more true to mm. the to the plot. But it's a beautiful film aesthetically. I was just and the accent's away. good. We've had a, a lot of Scotsmen saying accents spot on. Spot on, exactly. And I don't I don't think Michael Fassbender's ever done a bad accent ever. No. He's just mind blowing. And but I really really enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Yeah, I, the Lady Macbeth thing is still. She is, she is definitely sidelined somewhat. She's yeah. no longer driving the plot, which she obviously does in sort of more traditional adaptations. Well, Flora, we appreciate your cake. Thank you very much indeed. Can, you, can, you, can we kind of consume it later? And, uh, of course you once, can. Uh, yes. And, and then once Jason has taken his very large slice. Uh, exactly. We can, we can and I it. think some of the uh, finalists of Weldon, you should get a celebratory cake for exactly their great, right. great food. Well, we appreciate the cake. Thank you very much indeed for the thank moment. Flora Shedden, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So... You can stay, Flora, just shuffle along there. So tea and cake is all very well, but what we need is someone uh, on stage. I don't think it's going to be fair to ask someone to actually eat the cake while being interviewed, because that would, particularly this looks like a bit of a, a chewy mouthful. So ladies and gentlemen, why don't we introduce another one of our special surprise guests as we welcome to you one of the, spars, one of the stars of Spectre. Who's it going to be, do you think? I don't know. They don't tell me anything. It's C, otherwise known as Sherlock's Moriarty. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Scott. <laughs> All right, Andrew. Uh, very nice to see you, Andrew. Thanks very much indeed. Look, there's obviously there's a great dress code about the stars of Spectre because when people see the interview with Daniel later, he's wearing a fabulous white shirt. And look at that, beautifully underdressed. Yeah, we send each other photos in the morning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I'm going because Mark's going to do his review later, 
So, so I should do my bit and just say congratulations because it's a fabulous film. Oh, thank you. You've seen it, yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah absolutely. And, and, and I've seen it too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which which yeah. is just yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like a big build-up thing, you know. Yeah. Just, just ex explain who you are and where you fit in with the, uh, in, with the story. I play a character called um, Max Denby, uh, and his codename is C who is the new um, head of an organization called CNS, which is the Center for National Security. Uh, so he's a sort of new uh, head, really, and uh, he's a cocky little fella. <laughs> which is almost the way you're described uh, <laughs> on screen. Uh, uh, slightly more, slightly yes. more stronger yeah. terms. That's probably where I got that from. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there's something about you that as soon as you come on stage, well, as soon as you, we see you uh, in the film, we instantly know we don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's one of those guys. I th he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's quite uh, posh, and he's not lacking in um, uh, self-confidence. Uh, I mean, he's intelligent. I think those guys, to, you know, to get jobs like that, they have to be very smart. But this guy, is, uh, he's got ideas about surveillance that um, you know, we all uh, are a little fearful of, I think, in the digital age. And um, So, yeah, he's... Uh, he's uh, he, he's not a backward in coming forward. Well, with, with, without giving away um, details of the plot, obviously one of the themes of Spectre is this, uh, this disparity between, on the one hand, that you know, global surveillance about which we all feel suspicious, mm. which he sort of embodies, and mm. the old school agent in the field looking the enemy in the eye, which yeah. is what the, the... And that's yeah. kind of very much a central theme of Spectre, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, that, uh, that you have to make a decision as a human being rather than you can have as many cameras as you want and... Um, uh, and of course, uh, you know we have to we have to embrace the technology that we have because it does make things safer. But um, the idea of just training cameras on everybody at, at, at all at all stages and using violence um, unnecessarily is uh, is questionable and should be questioned. And uh, so it was important that we had an, an idea that was sort of a rational idea that that actually he's not he's not, he's not uh, coming from a place that's just completely um, without thought. Um, but that, that so the question is a very real one, and some some people actually would really really agree with some of the ideas of, of CNS in the film. Um, I'm not sure that I would myself personally, but uh, there's, there's an argument to be said for, to be had for, um, for some of the things he, he proposes. So uh, I think we should see a clip of uh, this uh, interesting character you created okay. uh, uh, in action, which is going to be projected uncomfortably for you. Yes, uh, Jesus Christ. Right behind you on, on a, this very yeah. large IMAX screen. So here's yeah. a little clip. In this is a first. From Spectre, starring Andrew Scott. And in light of the new information I've given him, He's decided to close down the double O program with immediate effect. You don't know what you're doing. It's not personal. It's the future. And you're not. You're a cocky little <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. I wouldn't. This isn't over yet. charge of surveillance and you're a civil servant but you're not even shaved and instantly go no he's up to no good yeah yeah it's an, it's an interesting thing seeing that clip on the on the huge screen and being about four foot away from it what you know to be you know people always talk about screen acting being different to theater acting it's all to do with tiny little gestures mm. just after people listening on the radio after ray fine says his lines there's a, there's a shot of you and you just very slightly sort of wobble your head in this way which is utterly dismissive and utterly contemptuous mm. And I wonder how, when you're doing something as big as Bond, mm. how 
difficult is it to concentrate on those on the minutiae of those performance moments? Oh, it's a really really good question. Actually, it was one of, one of the things that I was um, quite scared of. A lot of the films and that I've done have been sort of lo more low key and more independent films and a bit of theatre and everything. And so my worry a little bit was that you 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 get sort of lost in a, in the huge multi-million dollar um, action movie that Bond is. But actually, because Sam is a, is a as theatre director, he's completely obsessed with acting. Um, so uh, he's, he, he knocks on your door and says, oh, what if, we, what if we make sure we have the beat here? And then I felt that I could speak at any stage about saying, you know, maybe I should say this and maybe I should say that. And, uh, and uh, actually between, no matter what the budget is or, or how many big, huge set pieces there are, if uh, you are in charge as an actor between action and cut, and whatever you choose to do has to be has to be um, real and believable for the audience because that's actually what I think people hold on to. And I feel quite ferocious about that. Actually, I feel very I feel very strongly that that I I don't want to be bullied no matter what the budget of, of it is into doing something that um, you know because I think audiences can smell um, uh, fakeness or stuff that they've sort of seen before. So I feel like it's important that that, that the nuances of stuff is. Uh, Remains and hopefully that's. Do you think that's something that Sam Mendes has particularly brought brought to Bond? Because over the history of Bond, there has been the acting has been of changeable quality. It's not yeah. always yeah. on. Do yeah. you think? Yeah, yeah I do. Well, I, the, I I know Sam. We did a play together some years ago on Broadway, and that's how we how we met. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that, that that's the same with a lot of the actors in, in Bond. They're Rafe Rafe and Daniel himself and Ben Whishaw, Rory Kinnear and. They're all, a lot of them are, are theatre actors, and uh, I think that's what the achievement of Skyfall was, actually, that it had um, uh, a certain degree of pathos with it. And I think people can, I, th I think those two things can, can coexist. And actually what I love about uh, Spectre when you see it is that, that that sort of melancholy that Daniel had in, in Spectre continues it in, in, in a certain way in, in Spectre. And uh, I think an audience um, really appreciates that. I don't think... Uh, uh, um, saying you have to have one thing or the other that you can't have great acting and great spectacle and I think that's a complete fallacy and um, so uh, hopefully hope, hopefully people will agree with that Flora, have you, are you a Bond fan? Were, you Huge Bond oh, fan, okay. I loved um, Skyfall, it yeah, was amazing good. and that was one of my favourite parts of Skyfall was the um, people like Ben Whishaw and yeah, Rory yeah, Kinnear yeah. and kind of the secondary characters I think were just fantastic in yeah, it probably yeah. yeah, to do well to do with people like yourself as well, but uh, Sam as well. Yeah, yeah. That was when, a huge influence. We mentioned when Sam was here that you know Skyfall was the big, most successful British movie of all time. I think it was like the twelfth biggest movie of all time. You know, quite extraordinary to come off the back of that. Do you get any sense of the juggernaut of Bond when you're doing those scenes? Because that's quite an intimate scene that we're doing. There aren't lots of explosions no, in that uh, scene. Yeah. Do you get any sense of the fact that this is? So much is riding on the success of this movie. No, I, 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 well, a little bit you do. I mean, it would be, nice, it'd be, it'd be sort of disingenuous to say that you don't have, there's, there isn't a certain, uh, um, that you have a much larger budget and you're shooting it in Pinewood. I mean, it doesn't sort of escape, escape you that you, you're in the walls of MI5. Um, but actually, after a few days, I, mean, the I, I always say the first couple of days, I kept hearing... Doo -doo -doo -doo. <laughs> I was just so delighted to be there. Um, but actually, after a few days, uh, no, it was just like making another film. And you go, how do you make it right? And um, and it takes as much. It's it's exactly the same um, method as it is in making any 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 film. But there and must there must sorry. also be a part of you which every morning wakes up and goes, I'm doing Bond. It's like you know Jason doing uh, Harry Potter. There must be a part of you who just goes, I'm doing Bond. Yeah, there is a, there is a little bit. There, there, uh, there is a, certainly at the beginning there definitely was. And this that means week, by the end there wasn't at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well you just you just kind of get 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 on with it. I think now this week we're we're promoting the, the film and I get us I'm getting a sense. Yes. 
Um, uh, that uh, <laughs> that it's a big it's a big movie and there's expectations and people are really excited about it. So and yeah, just cool. just briefly because I know you have to go. Victor Frankenstein. Yeah. Coming next, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. That's going to be quite big too. Yeah, that'll be a big movie. Yeah, there's a there's a new movie of um, Victor Frankenstein with Dan Radcliffe and James McAvoy, and uh, yeah, that's another that's another big one. I'm trying to not think of Young Frankenstein now. Yes, because I have to say that's Frankenstein. Yes, Frankenstein. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you give me a hand with the bag? Certainly, you take the blonde, I'll take the one in the turban. Which is the <laughs> you need? <laughs> yeah, thank you. You do seem to specialise. You know, whether it's Sherlock or whether it's Bond, there's so much that you've worked on that we can't ask you anything about yeah, because it's yeah. all a secret. Yeah, it's all that's that's. Uh, anyway, uh, don't sweat the small stuff, as I say. But it is, yeah. You just nod and smile through interviews. <laughs> and will you enjoy? The, and will you enjoy the premiere on uh, on Monday? Uh, I, I I hope to. I hope to. Yeah, I think my family are coming over, and it's a big old deal. And uh, yeah, no, it's important. It, it, they, it can be quite overwhelming these these things. But um, no, I'm determined to. Um, to enjoy it and, and to not let uh, get overwhelmed by the occasion. So. Well, Andrew, we appreciate you spending some time Oh, no with problem. Us. My pleasure. Uh, Andrew Scott and Flora Shedden, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Flora. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's Five Live at the Empire Leicester Square. It's our Bond special in front of our specially invited audience. I say specially invited, there were 12,000 ticket applications and you're the lucky folk uh, who've made it here. You'll still hear from Daniel Craig later on. You'll hear Mark's review of Spectre, all to come in our uh, final half hour. But some, uh, also the well done new results coming up. We're going to show the winning film. Jason is going to be handing out the awards after... Mark has done a, a brand new movie, something else which is coming out this week, which you might not know about. Well, let's very quick, quickly, because you kind of prejudged this anyway. Let's do The Last Witch Hunter. I didn't so, prejudge it at all. Well, you sort of did. So, The Last Witch I Hunter is a, is a movie which has kind of been willed into existence by Vin Diesel, who it turns out is the world's biggest uh, dungeon, Dungeons and, and Dragons fan. And this is basically a kind of very post Twilight, very much Highlander light romp. Uh, Vin Diesel plays uh, Calder, who is an ancient. Uh, witch Hunter, at the beginning of the film, is cursed with immortality, so he will have to carry around his burden for the rest of his life. Then we move to a, a modern-day setting, in which something which you've seen very much before. There are, in fact, uh, magic folk living amongst us, so there's, you know, there's a slight Harry Potter edge to all this, um, and they are being kept in check by the, the latter-day Witch Hunter, played by Vin Diesel. Uh, but events conspire against him, so he has to team up with, uh, with Chloe, played by Rose Leslie, and they must join forces to stop an ancient evil uh, arising. And it's one of those movies in which it's played pretty much like a video game. I mean, it un it's playing entirely towards its fan base. It's kind of going, OK, well, we're aiming ourselves absolutely at the teen boy fan base. So you can't throw a runestone without hitting a member of, you know, the cast of Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or Dark Knight. And everything proceeds from one set piece to the next in utterly perfunctory fashion, as if you're doing some kind of video game jump from level one to level two. Vin Diesel does that Vin Diesel performance that he... I mean, it's really funny, because there's been some question in the past about whether or not uh, Jason Statham has range. Uh, Vin Diesel... Hmm. Jason Statham has... But, you know, Vin he, do, he does what he does. Michael Caine is, is there, albeit briefly, as, uh, a, as something to drive the plot forward. But... I didn't think it was as terrible as it could have been. I thought it was it's as hokey as anything, and it makes no sense, and it looks like it's setting itself up for a franchise, which I can't imagine is going to fly. But on the other hand, it is what it is. It's a Dungeons & Dragons you know, enthusiast-led project aimed entirely at the teen fanboy market that keeps saying to you, well, if you don't like this bit, don't worry, because there'll be somebody along in a moment from a film which you do like. 
So it's uh, Five Live at 3.25. Uh, there, there is another new release coming uh, on the way, The Spectre Review, and also Daniel Craig coming in our final half hour. But now, it's time for a cheesy fanfare. Cheesy and long, <laughs> you'd have to say. That was longer than my review of The Last Witch Hunter, actually. <laughs> uh, Jason Isaacs rejoins us on stage. Oh, uh, we've oh got yeah. to that moment. Hello, hello, hello. I so can't believe you didn't lay into this cake. Flora's been up baking this thing. Could be cardboard inside. It, Could be nothing that, in there. That's yeah. very true. Well, we've had our mind oh. on other things. And there he goes. There we oh, are. Yeah. So everyone else is thinking about the World well Done You competition. Like, that is oh, Jason has cut a slice of Flora's yeah. cake. It's What's looking it? pretty magnificent. I'd love some. You I've just it? got yeah. a show to do. So <laughs> apart from that, Jason. I'm just a contributor. I can have as keep much talking. as I want. That's right. So keep talking, Sam. It's okay, right. So Jason is here, one, because he's hungry, and also <laughs> because it's time to reveal the winner of this year's World well Done You short oh, film competition, hell, which cool. we've been for... <laughs> I've warned you about your language before. You are still on the radio, <laughs> Jason, so even away. though you're eating. I'm sorry, sorry. You came close to it before. No, no. Anyway, we've been running this competition in association and in conjunction with BBC Get Creative. Shove yeah. some more cake in your face. Yeah. <laughs> so the directors of the top three chosen by Mark and me and director Amit Asante are here. Mm -hmm. Mark, just remind us who they are, please. Uh, so we have uh, from Blip and Blob, Grant Holden. From Soundtrack, John Gillespie, and from Bob, Damien Matthews. Would you join us on stage, oh. please? So we have Grant Holden, John Gillespie, Damien Matthews. The live streamers now can actually see all of this, and we will be showing you the film during the 3.30 news. Do come and join us, please. OK. So we have our three young filmmakers. Now... <laughs> What are you going to say to them, Jason? Who's seen these films? If you haven't seen them, shame on you. Hands up who's seen at least one of these films. So that's superb. They're two minutes long, but they are utterly fantastic. I have to say, the notion of giving a prize seems absurd to me. I mean, it, it's the nature of competition, but the yeah. idea that anybody has to win is, is a terrible shame. And the ones that didn't win, for me, one of the most glorious things about this, where the hell am I meant to go? <laughs> <laughs> it's not all about you. <laughs> I'll stand there. But... Um, the thing, one of the things I love most about the submissions is the ones that don't really work. Because the glory about making a two-minute film is you can make one, you can make another one, make another one, you can make dozens of films until you find out what does work. That's, nowadays, the technology is free. You can work out how, where your strengths lay and just start making films. Start making them and overwhelm them next year. Send in 100,000 entries. Right, well, you're going to be on you're the on. judging shortlist yeah, right. then. <laughs> OK, so the winning film gets a slice of cake... <clears throat> Can I just say that really is very it good cake? Very good. <laughs> <laughs> is I'm, it allowed? This is in the sense, this is a breach of the rules of conduct to so have a piece of cocktail. There's no talking. film playing at the moment, Jason. I feel as though this is undercutting the tension somewhat <laughs> uh, at the moment. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the sofa, <laughs> Paul, Grant, Grant, John, and Damien are thinking, can you just lose the cake just for a moment and <laughs> tell us what's happened? Okay, the winning film gets a BBFC U certificate. It's going to be shown in this cinema to this audience and live online. All three directors are going to get a frankly horrible trophy, which I'm holding uh, in my hand. Time for some tension music. <laughs> does that say tension to you? It, it does to me, yes. <laughs> the tune of the bells? Yeah. Ah. 
That no, was no John Boyle. It's, it's, it's the theme from The Exorcist. It's oh, really? got your, otherwise known as Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. The votes have been counted. The lines are closed because they were never open. <laughs> Jason, can you reveal, please, which film is in third place? Film in third place, although all places are, are nonsense. They're all brilliant, but for today's purpose, the third place film is Bob. And that's Bob Damien Matthews. Damien, hold that. I have to say, the gap between you three guys is, is absolutely tiny. Just tell us about your movie, because we loved your movie. Tell us about Bob. Uh, it's a story of a beetle and his mission. Um, I found him whilst out cycling. I nearly ran him over, which would have ended his mission right there. Um, but what did you shoot it on? I thought the fo focus was beautiful, but very thin um, it, depth of field. What was thank it on? you. Uh, it's just a digital uh, compact camera, which happened to uh, take film as well. I just started filming because I loved the way he moved. It was so pompous and you know, sort of self-important. Pompous is absolutely right. He's <laughs> yeah. a pompous little beetle, isn't <laughs> but he? He's yeah. on, but he's on a mission. He's on a mission. I mean, it's, uh, there, is a, there is a real sense of, you know, I don't, it's a one-minute movie about a beetle walking up, but it's, it has a real sense of mission. Would have been better <laughs> 3D, I think. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. And just that's why he's an time. actor. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, well done. This is uh, well done. You. This is your uh, third prize, hideous trophy, and I'm sure you'll cherish it. A uh, round of applause for today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so it's down to two. Uh, it's between soundtrack and blip and blob. Jason, will you tell us who has won, please? We'll come back and we'll number two. We'll come back and, and we'll mention the number two because obviously the number two person is going to feel a little bit underwhelmed, a bit disappointed. Yeah, yeah. But uh, dramatic pause. Arbitrarily chosen, but fantastic winner. It reminded me of uh, Flight of the Concords, I thought. Rather, was the brilliant soundtrack. Soundtrack. <laughs> John Gillespie. Stand up. There is a BBFC certificate to certify that soundtrack has been classified for cinema exhibition, which might happen soon. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Well, well done. Thanks so much. Oh. John, here's the microphone. Tell us. Tell us about soundtrack. Uh, well, I really need to mention uh, Patrick, who couldn't be here today, but he was my co-director and my muse on this film. And uh, we, he phoned me up and said, uh, do you want to make a film? And despite me living in Scotland and he in England, we went back and forth on Skype and then went down to Liverpool on one very hot day in July and convinced two of our friends, Sam and Sean, to run around like crazy in a suit. And uh, they managed to be amazing, despite our shambolic direction. And they're in the audience today. And uh, it was, yeah, amazing. Should and this is quite incredible. I feel they should maybe stand and well, get a, If, a, if get Jason says they need to stand, then they need well, to stand. Where are you, boys? There you go. All right, guys. We're going to show that in just a minute. You can watch this all online, of course. So we mustn't forget, we must not forget, in second place, Blip and Blob. Uh, this is Grant Holden in runner-up place here. It's a sensational, amazing piece of animation just explain blip and blob because we, we you know we could have argued and fought over these three for a long time um so yeah blip and blob is um quite a simple little animation of just a, a blob and a blip really um and they've got little eyes and it's really just a story of sort of friendship and forgiveness and learning to play in harmony as they they bounce they make um piano notes and noises so and beautifully it's told really moving, that, yeah it really it's is really with moving. that conflict being played out with Thank musical you. notes and discord and harmony and again that classic thing about such a simple idea and just done really really beautifully Thank you. so one of the things all three of you did and lots of people did really well 
was not take two minutes and try and make a three act or five act, but just yeah. go, I can deal with just an idea or a feeling or an emotion. You don't have to tell a full story. And uh, I think you did it really incredibly well, all three of you. It's great to see so many women on the couch as well. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the... Each, each one point. of these movies, if it was shown before a big feature, each one of them would not be embarrassed. Each one, I think, has got an idea... Uh, pursued and directed all the way through so that you're looking at two minutes of, of enormous talent, I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, we could have put them in any order, but congratulations, gentlemen. Can you give a round of applause, please, to all of our finalists for the Well Done Youth Competition? Thank you to Jason. A pleasure as ever. Filmmakers of the future. So we uh, in the room, by the way, Amara Santi, who is uh, uh, our other judge, is in Botswana uh, making a movie with David Ayelowo. And uh, Tom Felton. And Tom Felton, has yeah, that been it's under... It's a very small world. He plays my son in Harry Potter. It's a very small, incestuous world. Isn't it? Right, very good. Right, <laughs> OK. And he's in it as well. Um, and uh, she has sent uh, some comments as well, which we'll get to uh, in a few minutes' time after the news and sports, so you'll hear what Amma uh, makes of all this. So here in the room, uh, here at the Empire Leicester Square, and the live streamers online are going to watch the winning film, which is Soundtrack, going to be up on the IMAX screen, so your actors up there are going to have a real good time. <laughs> My word, they're going to be big. Still to come, Daniel Craig and Mark's review of Spectre. Five Live, we have uh, a final 25-minute uh, section, something like that, but the, phone is, the uh, clock has just died. So, frankly, we might just go on for a couple of hours. We're still at Leicester Square. We're still in London. We're still at the Empire with our specially invited audience who applaud when you point at them. <laughs> Spontaneously and without any kind of planning or that. So, uh, we're here to talk Spectre. You'll hear Mark's review. You'll hear from Daniel Craig in just a moment. But just before the news... Uh, the Well Done You competition for this year was sorted out. It absolutely uh, was. It's a beautiful film. It's terrific. Which I mean, we watched here. It's, that, it's the thing that, that Jason was saying. It's it, the, With all the films, actually, it's the idea of taking one idea and running with it and understanding that there is a real virtue in, in a short film being short. It's not trying to do too much. So it's just a very, very simple idea about you know the absence of happiness, the absence of joy, and then it uses music brilliantly to to bring that theme back into the film. And we just saw it here in, the, in a packed screening. Big laughs. I mean, more laughs, I have to say, during that film than many allegedly comedy features that I have watched <laughs> of 140 minutes recently. So, you know, it, yeah, it did its job terrifically. And you said quite rightly, with any of the winners, I think you could play them before a major feature. Yeah. And, and the audience would really love what, them. Go, go and have a look at Bob if you haven't seen it. Look at Blip and Bob. There's, there's just terrific... They terrific are really work. charming, beautifully done, very well observed and adventure. And they are the sort of thing which you could not have predicted when we started the, the competition. You wouldn't have said, well, I think you know, that's the sort of thing we might get. Yeah, and uh, here are some thoughts. We've only, arrived, we only received this just a, a, about an hour ago. From Botswana, here's our fellow judge, Amara Santi. Hello, everybody. What an amazing shortlist for this year's Well Done You short film competition. It just goes to show how much talent there is out there. You know, these days, everybody has a camera on their phone, and with the easy and cheap and accessible technology that we have, anybody can make a film. So I hope this inspires you all to go out there and make your own films and maybe enter next year's competition. What I loved about Soundtrack The Winner was that it was witty, clever, bold, and told its story in the short amount of time that was allocated. It was brilliant. Congratulations to the winner then, and well done to all of you that were shortlisted. See you next time. Uh, some thoughts from Amara Santi, our fellow judge, um, out making what hopefully is going to be another huge movie from it, because we were big fans of that. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, if you want to watch uh, those movies, uh, the short little films, bbc.co.uk slash well done you. We have our own little website for it, bbc.co.uk slash well done you. But maybe not just yet, no. because we have some other business we to do. attend to. Um, before you uh, listen to and see the Daniel Craig interview, it starts in an unusual way. I should tell you that these interviews are... are um, they're kind of like horse and hound interviews. That's the way they were always uh, portrayed <laughs> yeah. uh, in the Richard Curtis movie. The, Notting and, Hill. That's right, Notting Hill. And you have your certain time allocation. Uh, this was a circus the way I'd never seen a circus before. Thousands and thousands of people all uh, working on this huge James Bond project. So I have my six minutes uh, with Daniel Craig and you get ushered in. And the first thing, the reason why we start talking about entourage at the beginning of the interview is that I walk in, the bit you don't see, is I'm say, I say, hello, Daniel, 2004, layer cake, which was the last time I did a face-to-face -face interview with him. Yeah. We'd done other interviews with him, but they weren't face-to-face. -face. Yeah. So he said, yeah, I remember that. I came into the Five Live Studios, etc." And then he said, that entourage clip's gone around, hasn't it? <laughs> and instantly we're talking about uh, our least favourite movie for a very long time. <laughs> and I'm thinking... Okay, so this is this huge circus. It's James Bond, and we're talking about the vileness of Entourage instantly. <laughs> well, anyway, so that was quite a good place to start. So you'll hear Mark's review of Spectre uh, in just a few moments' time. First of all, star of the moment, Daniel Craig. And finally, Daniel Craig, mm. good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Good. So you've seen the Entourage rent then? Yeah, it's been doing the rounds. Yeah, everybody's. What do you think? It's fabulous. <laughs> So how are you um, a few days before a movie like this comes out? Not that there are many movies like this, but are you nervous? Is it a bit like Christmas Eve? Is it like uh, expectation, fear? Yeah, of course, because you know, you've, you've spent a large part of your life making the movie. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, this has been two years, really, from beginning to end, uh, uh, from sort of day one when Sam and I sat down together and went, OK, what are we going to do? I mean, it's... Um, so there's a huge amount, and then there's the fact that there's hundreds and hundreds of people involved with it, and you've all been kind of working to one one yeah. moment. The movie finished editing on Saturday. Um, really? uh, yeah, I mean, I mean that's just Sam. He just won't leave it alone <laughs> until he, you know, because he's a perfectionist, which is great. Um, and yeah, we're nervous as hell, nervous as hell. Have you seen the final edit then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw it on Saturday night. All right, so you're yeah. fine with it. I'm okay, I'm good, yeah. Okay, and, and the reviews are in, so I don't know whether yeah. you're one of the actors that goes, I don't want to know them, but a five-star in the Times must be quite a nice... Buzz. I've heard, I haven't read anything, but I've heard that they were okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid it. Oh, okay, but, Yeah, right. but, 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 but no, no, not at all, but I mean, aren't, I mean I've been told they're kind of positive, so yeah. that's, that's... But you great. know it's good, don't you? I think so. I'm incredibly proud of it. I mean, what we what we set out to do something, and I think that's and, and what's on the screen is what we set out to do. So, why was it so important to keep Sam Mendes? Just explain a little bit about your relationship. Um, he's a, a, a wonderful director to work with. Just to, from a purely actor's point of view, about when you're on set with somebody, when you're with someone as smart and intelligent, and also as just tuned into the way actors think. He knows what to say at the right moment. He knows the right kind of confidence to give you at a certain moment. You're feeling a bit shaky about, what, I don't know what this means. And he knows what to do. We started working incredibly close together on Skyfall, and it was, you know, we really kind of got into each other and sort of uh, and, and, and tried to push each other as hard as we possibly could. And when it came, we, this one came up, it was just like, Sam, you, you started something. He, 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 you know, we got great casting, we got great actors coming in. There were stories to tell about them. And I, I'm, we have this 
I mean, we've literally had the shorthand now. I mean, we did all, all the talking before we started shooting. I was just saying before, we kind of grunted each other on set. There's not even a kind of... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and we kind of know what... Because we, we've, we've figured it out. We've, we've spent so much time figuring it out. And, um, and I, I love working with him. I just... I, 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 you know, like I said, we push each other. So does that time. make it a less fraught... I mean, there are enough things to worry about over a very long shoot. There's always plenty to worry about. There's but always, there's always little time. things going wrong. There's always, yes, I think so. And I think by, I, I, definitely. I mean, I think we'd done Skyfall. That was quite tense. It was quite, for me as well, I mean, off, you know, I mean, you, you know, the, the, for all of us, it's always a bit tense. But I think this time around, we kind of, certain things were already in place. So we didn't have to worry about those. And then 10 other things come along you have to worry about. Yeah. But it's like there are things that were just taken care of. I loved it. I right. thought it was uh, exhausting, mm. uh, thrilling. Mm. Uh, we learn never to trust a man who doesn't wear socks with mm. shoes, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very important lesson. But I think mm. that it feels really contemporary because the thing we're scared of mm. is information. And mm. the thing that we're scared of is technology, mm. which I don't think I've seen before in a Bond film. I mean, obviously, it's of this moment, all of that uh, plot line. Um, and... I think we all just tuned into it, and we didn't, it, it, you know, it, when, when you're coming to, what, what does a bad guy do in the world? What, what, what does the evil villain do? And it's, we've sort of seen everything over the years, whether it's in Bond movies or all yeah. these other movies that are going on at the moment. It's like, what's the, the dastardly villain? And this just seemed to be, hit, the, hit, hit, the, hit the mark for everybody. Um, and, uh, and also about, the, you know, Bond's character. He's... He wants to look people in the eye. He wants to communicate like we're doing now, as opposed to sort of, you know, yeah. doing it all remotely. And that's that. That became it. Just you know. And advice, right. advice for parents, Daniel. Yes. Top end twelve A. Would you say? I mean, we'll get a lot of people saying. I, I can think. We, I can think we there's a couple of there's, uh, there's a couple of moments. I, I watched it the other night. I was thinking exactly that. But actually, there's only maybe one or two moments which are I, I think. You know, you want to turn away, but I do because I'm, you know, you know you I mean, do. yeah, I mean, it's like they got, they're like, oh god, no. But I think we've kept it, we've kept it pretty, uh, pretty uh, tongue in cheek, and I hopefully that kind of balances it out. So um, yeah, you know, maybe, but it's, uh, I, I, I don't think we should worry too much. There are far worse things out there. Daniel Craig, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Nice to see you. Thank you. Uh, Daniel Craig, who was uh, speaking to me a couple of days ago. So we did, I, as you know, I didn't do the, um, so are you going to do another one? Yes. Uh, because everyone else has been doing that. But the 12A certificate thing, I think, is quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it was, of course, trimmed to achieve a 12A, so it is, uh, you're right, that it is genuinely top-end. That's not just a matter of opinion, that is a matter of fact. I just, I, I just I said, there is a peculiar horror in seeing yourself projected on the biggest movie screen in London. <laughs> Uh, on the IMAX screen next to here. Daniel Craig, next to Daniel who looks Craig. fabulous. He does. Thanks for the support and the uh, and the confidence, <laughs> old chum. That's fine, mate. Okay, so Tippity top. You gave a, a, a thinly disguised thumb indication yep. to Sam Mendes as to what you thought. This is the moment. Then let's hope you like it. I saw it uh, on the, the the first press screening, which was on I think it was uh, Wednesday night uh, in in Leicester Square, and I, there was a moment about two thirds of the way through where I, I literally felt myself going, "This is great," and it was a, it was a sense of real relief because I was more worried than anybody after the, the you know the triumph of Skyfall and having loved Skyfall as much as I did, 
which is, it, I have to say, it is still my joint favourite Bond movie, you know, with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I, I loved it. And I, there was always that worry about revisiting something. And, you know, is it going to move on? Is it going to be a different movie? Well, as Sam Mendes said, the first thing is it is a very, very different beast. I mean, it is more playful. It is more varied. It is something which very knowingly refers back to the sort of the strange heritage and history of Bond. You know, whether we're looking at, uh, you know, From Russia With Love or The Spy You Loved Me or, uh, you know, the, the old heritage of, of gadgets and Bond gags. It is also a movie which has got more laugh-out-loud zingers than I remember any Bond movie having for quite a long time. Many of them, I have to say, Ben Whishaw, whose role, he plays it beautifully. He has an absolutely fantastic sense of comic timing. So there was a real sense of relief in liking it as much as I did. And when that, when that moment passed, when I thought, this is great, I realised how much I'd been enjoying the action sequences. One of the problems with Bond in the past is that sometimes they, they do tend to be uh, you know, travelogues and action sequences. Now, we get all that here. We get all the travel. We get Tangier, we get London, we get Rome, we get Austria. And we get nail-biting action sequences with planes and helicopters and cars and, you know, and fights and shootouts, all done in a way that every time it happens, it's like the, 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 the next level up in a song, the next chorus in a song. I, I never got bored by those sequences, which is quite something, because I often find that stuff the least interesting part. So what you have is basically a story, as you said there with Daniel Craig, when on the one hand the future is all to do with global technology and global snooping, and the old-fashioned uh, Bond ethos, which is the man in the field looking at his enemy in the eye, that's sort of the centre of it. Then you have uh, Christoph Waltz's character, who was referred to by, uh, by Sam Mendes, Oberhauser, who is this sort of strange spectral presence that you're not entirely sure you know, where he's come from, what he's doing. And there are a whole sort of revelations about his character which spin out uh, during the movie. But actually, the thing that really, uh, that really charmed me was uh, you have a terrific central force by Leia Seydoux, who, is, who plays Madeline Swan, who we first meet in this sort of angular clinic on a snowy hilltop that reminded me very much of Chris Nolan's Inception. It's funny because Inception obviously borrows from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And this then seemed to be tipping its hat back towards inception in some of those ultra I mean you know those ultra futuristic designs you almost expected Bond to say I'm sorry whose dream are we in at the moment and it's significant that Hoyt van Hoytema who of course shot Interstellar which was Chris Nolan's uh, movie you, which, which you loved so much was was the DP and that but what Leia Sadu does is she manages to have that that brilliant balance of you know strength and sultriness and managing to make a character completely three-dimensional and completely rounded and so what you, what you get at the centre of this is a sense of not just one character with everything happening around him, but a sense of characters interacting and, uh, you know, a, a, a fractious relationship growing through the drama. So that means that the, the thing is grounded in some kind of proper character development. But... Every, all the time that's happening, you're also getting exactly the stuff that it is that Bond audiences pay for, which is the action, the spectacle, the glamour, the ludicrous wardrobe changes, the fact that wherever they go, somebody appears to have, you know, couriered fantastic clothes to them. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that thing about the, the, the threat of the sockless man. You know, there is... There is it, the, the, that's the, Christoph, that's Christoph, Christoph Waltz, yes, who is dressed terribly. He I doesn't think. wear socks, he's a badden. Yes, you know. and he wears proper shoes and he wears a Nehru jacket. We saw in the clip he wears the Nehru jacket. He, he looks like Ed Straker from UFO without socks, which is a really threatening combination. But so you get all those, the, the sense of fun and the sense of spectacle and, you know, and, and the chases and the action sequences. I mean, it's moved on from, in, in the case of Casino Royale, Casino Royale was really Bond catching up with Bourne. That sense of physical endangerment, that when they had the fight sequences, you actually felt that Bond was getting hurt. 
Um, in the case of Skyfall, I mean, we sort of will pass over question of sports. In the case of Skyfall, what you had was... It, That's it, an old joke, by the way, of Quantum of Solace. Quantum Solace, case, which yeah, I still think, you know, for, I, I know people have sort of reassessed it, but that, I, it, I still think Quantum of Solace is very, very troubled, and on a, on a writer's level, it's troubled. In the case of this, of course, there are several credited writers, and, uh, and it's, a, it's quite something that even with those several credited writers, the, the plot does actually make sense. The plot, incidentally, is ludicrous, and if you... It, it requires, as with all Bond movies, a sort of leap of faith to believe the sort of unspire, the uh, unspooling conspiracy. But the thing that's an indication of how much fun it is is that you don't start worrying about that whilst you're watching it. I mean, I found myself... There was two moments in the action sequences in which I actually jumped. And I have sat through horror movies in which I haven't jumped at all. There was a couple of moments, which I won't give away, which really, you know, really came as surprises. The opening sequence that Sam Mendes was talking about there, I mean, I know it's, you know, we use digital effects now, but it does have that touch of evil sense. It's laying out the table of the movie with this bravura, what did you say, four-and-a-half-minute sequence in which we go... Has that ever happened before in a Bond film where there's been that kind of... It, apparently one tracking shot? Well, you know, it, it, was, it was really interesting because I was in the, in the cinema watching it and, you know, we go through the... It's, it's the Day of the Dead parade in, in Mexico, and we, Mexico City, and we go down into the parade and then we go into hotel and we go up and we go out through... And you could almost feel the audience holding their breath, wondering how, you know, how long... This this was going to be able to be maintained. But what was important about it was that it sort of laid out the stall. It sort of said, you know, look, this is going to, there is going to be flash, there is going to be pizzazz, there is going to be stuff here that literally just takes your breath away with the sheer fun of watching it. And actually, the thing I felt most about it was how much fun it was, was how much I enjoyed it. Skyfall was a very different beast. And as I said, that sense of relief about two-thirds of the way through, which came from realising that it wasn't a replication of Skyfall, it wasn't a matter of doing Skyfall again, it was a matter of moving on and doing something else, but doing it in a way which, which, was, which, which worked in and of itself. It's funny because you said that when you spoke to both Daniel Craig and you had the same sense there from Sam Mendes that, that there's a sense of sort of completion. Well, I think it, just, I, it is just a sense, though. I think if you have that sense, it's because to have made two very different movies, both of which work... The, 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 what you're feeling is that sense of, OK, walk away now because, you know, you haven't actually put a foot wrong. I suspect this is going to be hugely, you know, hugely successful. I think everybody thinks that anyway. It was very encouraging to see the morning after that, the, that you know, the reviews were, were as boldly positive as they were. But in a way, you didn't need to read a review to know that. Just to sit in an audience in a, in a cinema with however many, like 1,800 people, whatever it was, and feel the audience collectively gasp when a couple of things happened, feel them rooting for, uh, you know, rooting for Bond in a way that perhaps in some of the other movies, you know, wouldn't have happened, laughing at the jokes. I mean, proper, full-on laughs. There are more laughs in this Bond than there are in most, most things that pass for comedies nowadays. And then at the same time, Lea being so terrific, and then Ben Whishaw, brilliant, uh, and then at the centre of it all, Daniel Craig looking for all the world like Bond ought to look. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Rather excitingly, there will be highlights of the show available to watch on BBC iPlayer later. Mark holds breath. What is your movie of the week? Well, I was dithering with Last Witch Hunter, but I think it's Spectre by a nose. <laughs> Next week, we're off, said Sanjeev Bhaskar and James King, uh, with Sir Ronan as their special guest. Uh, thank you very much indeed for coming down to Leicester Square. We appreciate your time. Hope you enjoyed the show. Stand by for tonight. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. Well, that was a good show, Mark. I thought you did particularly well. I thought it was fabulous. I thought you dealt with the unexpected streaker really well. <laughs> it's part of basic training. It is. You know.
Uh, I think your judicious use of the uh, the popcorn basket was uh, was was unique. It, yes, it was, it was. I was I was straight there. It's like the policeman with the helmet. It's exactly like that. Yes, <laughs> that's a sporting joke, incidentally. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Okay. Oh, it gets a round of applause. Okay, so um, why do, I've got an idea. Why don't we ask everyone what their favourite part? Did you enjoy it, by the way? Yes. Would you, you know, given the choice, would you stay for I don't know another couple of hours just to hang around? <laughs> if only we didn't have to uh, to disappear. Right. So if you got, so who had a good bit um, uh, of the show? So we got some hands going up here and some hands going up there. So let's start on the right. Uh, gentleman, I hope. Yes, he's got he's got sideboard. So. Yes, sir. What's your name? No, I can't hear you. Let's try again. We'll edit all this out. You always say that, but it always stays in. Hello? Hello? Yeah. Who are you, then? Uh, Luke Parker. What was your favourite bit, Luke? Um, Sam Mendes. He was pretty good. He was. What did you learn from the Sam Mendes? <laughs> so, what, did, what did you think? What did you think of that? Uh, he was just interesting. He was interesting. <laughs> good. Uh, let's see. Oh, yes, over here. What's your name? Hi, uh, I'm Casey Hollis, and uh, my favourite bit was when uh, Mark came out in his little Daniel Craig pants. That, that's right. That's right. That was a little bit needy. I thought Mark. <laughs> I was overcome. A little as a young bit. Woman. Look, a little bit. Look at me. <laughs> it's radio, you know. <laughs> All right, that's very good. Let's take the microphone up to the gentleman in a white shirt and glasses. Uh, yes, sir. Who are you? Uh, my name is Richard. And what was your, your favourite part, uh, My favourite bit was when the audience collectively said hello to Jason Isaacs. Yeah. That's, that's kind of always a favourite. Uh, it is, it is always a favourite. Yeah, we must remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I think it, it could become like a catchphrase. <laughs> uh, okay, where's the mic? We've got a microphone off stage left. Yes, who's, who's got it? Uh, it's Magico. Pardon? Uh, Magico. Magico. Yeah. Is that like a real name? Y yeah. Yeah. Or is that a blogger's name? <laughs> Or is a real name. A Twitter handle. Okay, well, Magico. You must be a conjurer or something. And yes, what was your favourite part of the show, would you say? My favourite part was when you got everyone to say what's up at the same time. I thought that was a bit cheesy and Mark looked to me disapproving of it. Yeah, I, th <laughs> I thought the best thing about that bit was when you tried to do it and everyone en masse remained silent <laughs> as a sort of, as a protest. And that was well done, everybody. That was great. In case people miss that, should we relive it? Yeah, we should do, yeah. Is that where they join in or they stay silent? No, it's the one when they protested that you, maybe the what's-up joke had run its course. <laughs> well, there's no point in reliving it then if you're going to be all bitter about it. Oh, I'm not going to do it now. <laughs> you want him to do it, don't you? Yeah, yeah I can. No, they don't. Oh, Simon, I'm please, not a performing we, monkey, we you know. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, well, you know, that's what I like to do. <laughs> so, um, thank you very much, Steve, for coming. Uh, it's, been, it's been very good. You've all been splendid. Thank you for behaving very well, apart from you, Mark, in your posing pouch. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Steve, for listening, and goodbye. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.